Well, good evening. good evening. Can you hear me in the back? If not, I'll scream really loud. We're so glad to see you tonight. Thank you so much for being here. We're in for a wonderful, wonderful evening. And I'm thrilled to share what I have heard a couple of times with you and with folks in West Virginia. Uh, we'll acknowledge our keynote speaker in just a bit, but I want to get this said right out of the, right out of the gate. David Barton is not in West Virginia nearly enough, and we want to try to help that in yeah. the future. But we're so glad that you're with us tonight. Pastor Rick Perrine, would you make your way to the platform, be ready to lead us in prayer, sir, in just a moment. Just by way of a little uh, logistical information, if you need to find uh, restrooms, you just go right back out these doors over here and turn back into the other part of the building. You'll come right to them. And we're thankful for uh, this gathering this evening. We had no idea what the response would be, so we prepared ahead. We, we, we did like Grandma does, right? When Grandma doesn't know how many's coming, she loads the table down. But uh, this, this group would not have fit well into our auditorium, so we're glad that you're here tonight. Yeah. And we're going to have a lot of good things to share with you this evening. Pastor Rick Perrine of the Ripley Baptist Temple, would you come and lead us in prayer as we begin tonight? God bless you, sir. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, it's so good to be here. Lord, it's a blessing when brethren dwell together in unity. And Lord, we have so much in common, but most of all, we have Christ in common. I pray, Lord, that we build up ourselves on our most holy faith tonight through your word, through the singing, through the fellowship. Challenge us, dear God, I pray. Thank you for the wonderful foundation that our nation is built upon. And Lord, as we hear about those, those Christian moorings, those, those, that foundation, that heritage that we have. Lord, I pray that freedom would ring and our faith would grow. And Lord, that you'd revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee. Bless every speaker, bless all the singing. And uh, thank you for all that are gathered here. Lord, revive the state of West Virginia. May Amen. we be more like Christ. And, and Lord, may our goal be that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Yes, bless us tonight in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. My name's Kevin Bartlett. I'm the pastor here at Maranatha Baptist Church. We're delighted to have you with us. We're delighted to have with us also Evangelist Byron Fox. Brother, come ahead and say a word, and then uh, you're going to help the choir, I believe. The choir's, I think I am helping the, the choir. choir's going to sing the national anthem for us, and you have them stand, but then you have a part in that too. I do. You're going to sing a solo? Uh, no. But we're going to say, We're going to say the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag. I'm an American tonight. I'm a Christian, but I'm also an American. Now, you've got to point to me when it's my turn to start that pledge, okay? Let's stand together. The national anthem. And there's our big flag right there.
United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. God for that. Let's remain standing. I let you sit down before I said that. Sorry about that. Let's sing uh, our song, Oh Beautiful for Spacious Skies. Now sing with me. We're going to get the words up here on the screen, please. Here we go. Boy, it's great to see you. We're ready. Fox. I am from Virginia, but I love the state of West Virginia. And me and Brother David Barton get to travel lots of different states, and we're thrilled to be here tonight. Now, is it a um, Democrat solution we need, a Republican solution? No, we need a Bible solution for America. Amen to that. It's not blue or red. It's God that we need and God's people. There's one group of people ever that will raise the level of righteousness in a country. Who's that? God's people. And if God's people don't do it, it's not going to be done. 
And so all of God's men, a bunch of preachers here tonight, God bless all of you pastors. Pastors, you've got to lead in this. God's got three divine institutions, the home, the church, and the government. So it's inconceivable that God's people would not be involved. Amen to that. We're going to hear a lot of wonderful things tonight. But one thing we've got to have is a call to action. And just talking is not enough. We've got to do. The book of James, some people want to take the book of James out of the Bible. Why? Because it says do. And that's what we've got to be is a lot of doers of the work of God. Pastor Bartlett, thank you, sir. All right. Well, this is a West Virginia gathering. We love, do you love West Virginia? I certainly do. You know, we have one of the greatest state songs ever. I'm not talking about country roads. I love that one, too. And it was added as, a, as one of our state songs, but our original state song is one of the best. God is mentioned throughout. This is an arrangement that we commissioned right here at Maranatha Baptist Church of the West Virginia Hills.
appreciate that. We're delighted to have some public servants in the room tonight, thankful for their presence this evening and their service uh, to our state. We have uh, Delegate Jonathan Pinson from right down here, and uh, he's a good friend of mine, close buddy, pastors also at Grace Baptist Church there in Mason County in the Point Pleasant. And also, Debbie Warner also serves in the legislature as well, right? God bless you, lady. We're so glad that you're here. Brother Pinson, Ms. Warner, would you all stay and let folks see you? Yeah. All right. And we're also delighted and honored, and he wins the award for the best dressed person here tonight, Secretary of State Mac Warner. Would you stay and sir? God bless you. We're thankful for your presence here this evening. I, uh, I work with a group of pastors, and each year we go to the Capitol. We're there often at different times, but we have one big push, usually in January, and we go to the Capitol to pray with our delegates and senators and other folks in government, off government office. And I just want to say to you personally, Mr. Secretary of State, you've been most generous to us. Yeah. He has made available conference space, which surprisingly is at a premium at the Capitol. It's hard to find a room to meet in. It's very difficult. And he has been very, very generous to us as we have come to minister and serve uh, these uh, delegates and senators. And I just want to say personally, Mr. Warner, thank you for that the generosity that you've expressed and, and placed for us. Thank you yeah. so much. And there's another distinguished guest with us, a Kentuckian. But we like our friends over in Kentucky. And uh, Brother Matt, come on ahead. This is Matt Lormer, and he, he represents the Alliance Defending Freedom. And the Alliance Defending Freedom helped us significantly this year get the RIFRA bill passed. We had tried several times, and there had always been political conniving to keep it from passing, but it passed. Yeah. And we, uh, we formed a group of some uh, groups, a group of groups, leaders, and uh, worked together, and delegates worked together, and, and it got passed. And Brother, Brother Lormer was significant help in that, along with other groups. But he has a special, I want you to meet him, fine brother in Christ, and he has a special presentation to make, and we thought this would be an appropriate gathering in which to make it. Matt, God bless you. Praise the Lord. What a wonderful uh, event tonight, and a great group, and amazing music. Thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to be a part of this. Uh, my name is Matt Lormer. I'm with Alliance Defending Freedom, and uh, we are the largest Christian law firm in the world. Um, we have played a role in 63 Supreme Court cases and victories. We have helped defend the West Virginia Hope Scholarship and currently helping protect the West Virginia Save Women's Sports Act. Our organization's life verse is John 15, 5. For without me, ye can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. In recent years, we have seen a shift uh, from the Supreme Court to state-level decisions. And my role is to help legislators past legislation that will impact the next generation. Our focus is generational wins. Each year, ADF presents a Legislator of the Year Award. This award is selected from nominations from across the nation and given to one legislator who has shown exemplary leadership, perseverance, and outstanding personal character. This, year, this year's award is very special and goes to someone that we know and love and are very proud of, 
and I'm very thankful for the opportunity to do this tonight. This individual is someone who took strong stands as a conservative and was punished for his stands, yet this did not deter him. He led an important bill this year, which had failed in past years since 2012. He unified sponsors in the House and the Senate. ADF has always believed in making stars of others, and our allies are essential to our work. This delegate also embodied those principles by extending the olive branch and building alliances. He worked hard and went out of his way to connect and build bridges where opposition had occurred. He helped keep various policy groups and allies from many different backgrounds unified and focused on the ultimate goal of passing good legislation that would impact generations to come. This delegate was dedicated to the task at hand, so much so that he worked late hours, all while being very sick. I got to see this firsthand. During this, he was called into the speaker's office and had no idea what awaited. Uh, he called me on the way to this meeting, and this was the defining moment that he would find out if the bill uh, would move forward or not. And we prayed over the phone that night, and with a burning migraine, fever, sore throat, he drove an hour, uh, put a mask on to meet with the speaker, and this was when he was told the bill would run. The delegate is exemplified humility, patience, and perseverance. And when the bill reached the Senate, he didn't give up. He faced persecution in the hallway and was called names and yelled at, yet he exemplified Christ throughout this. What a testimony. This bill will now impact and protect West Virginia for generations. Religious Freedom Restoration Act will help protect individuals, churches, nonprofits, and organizations to follow. So now at this time, we're excited to present the Legislator of the Year Award to Delegate Jonathan Pinson. Please come forward. Thank you very much. You can certainly be seated. I am, I am beyond grateful uh, for the Alliance Defending Freedom and the work that they put into allowing us to see the wonderful bills passed, not just the bill that, that I worked significantly on and so many others worked significantly on, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, but they had a presence at the Capitol for many bills and, and were there. So Matt, Alliance Defending Freedom, I'm so grateful for their hard work and others as well. Uh, I'm grateful for the honor to, to receive this, but really this award goes to others. There are individuals in this room, some sitting here to my left, some sitting in front of me, that are the reason that I have the opportunity to serve at the state capitol. And, and I'm grateful for friends. I'm grateful for fellow laborers. I'm grateful for my wife. Um, 
My wife uh, is at home with our five children, 10 years old to 10 months old, while I'm at the Capitol January, February, and March. And um, she keeps the home fires burning, keeps our family moving. So again, without going long, thank you. Thank you to Alliance Defending Freedom for the work that you're doing throughout the country. And, uh, and I'm grateful for this. I'll do my very best to serve in a way that would be pleasing to the Lord and, and honoring to your group. Thank you, Pastor Bartlett, for this wonderful evening. Thank you. That's wonderful. God bless Jonathan Pinson. Well, George Washington was our big leader. And we had this Revolutionary War going on. And there's 256 battles in the Revolutionary War. Well, did George Washington fight in all those battles? No. He fought in 17. And he only won six of those, but he won the, a big one at the end. You know what I'm saying? So who fought all those other battles? The locals did it. The local church has got to get into battle right now. The local pastor, the local church. And it is so exciting to see so many preachers starting to stand up, realizing we must be salt and light the way the Bible says. And so tonight we've got a wonderful pastor from my state of Virginia who works right along with me there in Virginia. Pastor Thomas Alvis from Mount Moriah Baptist Church, big place of Powhatan, Virginia. You might tell us about that place. But he's going to give us some calls to action. God bless you, Pastor. Amen. Thank you, Brother Fox. And thank you, Pastor Bartlett. What a privilege it is to be back here at Maranatha. Had the privilege of preaching revival here a couple of years ago. And I uh, love you, precious folks, and thank you for being here tonight. Many of you pastors we met over with the God Bless America rallies that we did several years ago. And uh, I, too, am a native Virginian, largest baby ever born in the old Riverside Hospital, 11 pounds and 2 ounces. And uh, they tore down the hospital, John. They really did, and they built a new one. Um, but um, I am thankful to be here uh, in Virginia, and somebody informed me. By the way, that was the first time I'd ever sung the West Virginia anthem. And I, I told uh, Brother uh, Tim it was the first time this Virginian had ever sung that. And somebody told me, well, I, they're glad that I was here in the best Virginia uh, uh, this evening. We, we can have discussion about that a little bit later. Um, but we are busy. You'll see the pen here, Faith Wins, your pastor, uh, Brother uh, Byron, served together on this. And our focus is really trying to engage and inform and involve God's people. You see, in Virginia, every year is an election year. We don't take any years off. We have over 2,000 seats on the ballot this year. And so we're traveling the state, uh, really trying to get God's people. By the way, we've already started voting. We don't have election day. We have election season. We have 45 days of early voting. That's a whole nother subject. Uh, but as Byron said, it's one thing to know something, it's something else to do. And one of the things I have the privilege of doing is giving calls to action at our God and Country rallies. And so let me give you a couple of calls to action. Number one, God's people need to be praying. Notice 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I exhort therefore that first of all, 
with great priority, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. In our culture, in our government, that is the elected and the appointed officials that we're to be praying for. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you prayed specifically for our president? Or vice president? Or U.S. senators? Congressmen? He says we're to be praying for them. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. One of our focuses is trying to restore a level of righteousness not only in Virginia and West Virginia, but throughout our country. And would you agree we need that this evening? Amen. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, and I love verse 4, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. In all that we do, we try to make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing. You know, the main thing is bringing glory to God. Right? That in all things He might be glorified. We're focused on equipping saints for the work of the ministry, and we're focused on sharing the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with everybody we have an opportunity to. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Verse 8, he says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Number one, action, we need to be praying. Action step number two, we need to be engaged, informed, and involved. And I jotted down here Philippians chapter 2. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. He says we're to do all things without murmuring and, murmurings and disputings. You let that sink in for a second. Did you ever watch the news? Murmurings and disputings. But he says that ye may be blameless and harmless. The sons of God without rebuke. I wonder if part of the problem in America today is God's people have not been blameless and harmless and without rebuke. We've not been pungent salt. We've not been brilliant light. And he says we're to be that, blameless, harmless, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Does that describe the day in which we live? Among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of truth, the word of life. Amen. We must be engaged. Do you realize that in America, according to Barna, there are 82 million evangelicals sitting in our churches and 40 million are not even registered to vote. As Chad Conley says, if God's people would get registered and would take their Bible and vote biblical values, we would never lose an election from dog catcher to the President of the United States. Notice, thirdly, we need to be involved in voter registration and voter information in line with what I'm just saying. I won't even ask tonight, but I trust that you're registered to vote. 
And if you know some people who are not, I trust you'll get busy in making sure that they do get registered and they do understand what the Bible has to say about the issues facing our culture. If I can have the next slide, every Christian registered and voting biblical values. On the table over here on my left, we have some business cards. They're in stacks of ten. I would encourage you to come take a stack and find some fellow believers who believe the Word of God who may not be registered. You know, sometimes people say, well, my vote doesn't count. Yes, it does. Every single vote. We could tell you tonight illustrations from Virginia and from other states where um, elections were decided by a handful of votes. Every single vote matters. We need to be registered. If you don't know how to use a QR code that you see up here, ask your grandchild. They can help you. They can take your phone and they can help you uh, with that. But it'll take you directly to our Faith Wins website. You put your state in and you put your email in. It'll take you right to that state's voter registration page. But it will help us at Faith Wins to be able to track how many we register. You say, why is that important? Several years ago, you probably heard, we were able to elect a conservative governor and lieutenant governor and attorney general and a conservative House of Delegates in Virginia. We registered during that year 77,000 Christians out of our churches that one year. Our governor won by 66,000 votes. It's important that God's people get involved. Action step next, we need to be building relationships. We need to be building relationships on the local level. I'm so thankful to see these officials here tonight. That means we've got to build the relationship. And again, it goes two ways. I understand that. But we need to be getting to know them. You know, elections really are decided on the local level. I, meant, I mentioned 2,000 people on the ballot this year in Virginia. We have 100 delegates in our House. Every one of them is up for election. We have 40 senators in the Senate. Every one of them is up for election. But in every county, we have 95 counties in Virginia, 38 cities that act like counties. Every single member of the Board of Supervisors is up for election. That's local. Every single member of the school board is up for elections. Every constitutional officer, that's the sheriff, that's the clerk of court, that's the commissioner of revenue, uh, that's the treasurer, five of those in every county. Several weeks ago, uh, by God's grace, we had a God and Country Sunday at our church. Again, as Byron said, Mount Moriah Baptist is in Powhatan. Any of you ever heard of Powhatan? A couple of you have. Powhatan was Pocahontas' father, Chief Powhatan. The Powhatan Indians settled in Williamsburg, and then they came up and they founded our county in the 1700s, shaped like an, an Indian arrowhead. And uh, we, uh, my wife says to people, you have to go to the middle of nowhere and then go half an hour more to get to Mount Moriah Baptist Church. And um, small church, we run 90, 95 on a Sunday morning. Several weeks ago, we had 16 candidates for office in our church and four spouses. We had Board of Supervisors and school board members. We had our U.S. Congressman there, our state delegate there, Monacan Soils. These are people that we have been building relationships with for 20 years. And now they are, one of the senators called me today. Said, would you pray with me, please? Got some questions. We've got to be building relationships. You say, how do you do that? Go to the Board of Supervisors meeting or go to the city council meetings. Go to the school board meetings. Go down and meet the sheriff and interact with them and get to know them, build relationships. 
How many of you are concerned about election integrity? Can I see your hand? You believe that it ought to be easy to vote and hard to cheat? Yeah. That's part of our concern as well. Now, in uh, Virginia, we have election officers and we have poll watchers. I think here in, in West Virginia, they're actually called poll workers, election officers. I looked up the code today. Nominated by the county executive committee, um, election boards, poll clerks, election commissioners. Um, you can find the manual there on the Secretary of State's website is where I found it today. And, um, but you need to be involved. We need to have eyes on every single ballot. We hear a whole lot of people complaining about cheating and things not being fair. Well, let's get involved and let's put our eyes on it and uh, get involved in it. There are plenty of places for us uh, to serve. This last slide I want to show you is our Faith Wins Take Action page. If you'd like to find out more information about how you can get involved, get engaged, again, use that QR code, go to faithwins.org. Over on the table over here on my left, we've got some flyers, some brochures that'll help direct you there. That will send me an email, and it'll say, I want to get more involved, and I will help to get you involved here on your uh, local level. Here's the bottom line, God's people, must get involved. That's right. We must be engaged. Right. We must not stand silently by. Silence is not golden. Right. By the way, the, the matter of life is not a political matter. That's right. It's a biblical matter. Yes. The matter of marriage is not political. It's biblical. Right. The matter of who's going to educate our children is not political. It's, they've all been politicized. Yep. These are biblical issues. By the way, Jesus is not running for office, right. so there's no perfect candidates, right? But find out what True. the candidate believes on these issues that are clearly communicated in the Word of God and vote for that candidate. Take your Bible and vote biblical values. Wonderful. Great. Pastor, thank you. Right on the money. We have some display tables over here. I want you to stop by after the meeting tonight and go through there. And we've got uh, David Barton's uh, table out in the hallway, and some of you are already taking advantage of stopping by there. Well, I get to introduce our main speaker tonight, David Barton. He and I have traveled a number of places together, riding buses in Georgia and flying out to Portland, Oregon. That's a long way from West Virginia, brother. That place is beautiful, but it's different out there than West Virginia and bought the best gas in America together out there in Seattle, Washington, six or $7 a gallon. It's got to be the best, you know what I'm saying? It's that expensive. I didn't dare buy a Diet Coke, but I appreciate his museum. Pastor Bartley, you and I have been down there together, and um, David Barton is, I believe, the best Christian historian alive in America today. And I want you to give him a big hand as he comes and speaks for us tonight. Praise God. David Barton's with us. Wonderful. Brother, appreciate it. Thanks, Byron. Thanks, Brother Bartlett. Appreciate it. I'm going to tell some stories tonight. You can think of this like Sunday school. It's like listening to Old Testament stories, New Testament stories, except it's American history stories, but it's just as biblical as anything that comes out of the Bible. I want to start with a Bible verse that you may or may not recognize. That Bible verse is Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. It says, And Jesus Christ hath made us kings and priests unto God and the Father. What does it mean to be king and a priest? That's where I can show you out of American history something about how to interpret this verse. I'm going to take you back to American history. And if I take you back to the story of the American founding. In the story of the American founding, there was a book written in the 1800s by a guy named Charles Dickens. And it was called The Tale of Two Cities. 
Now, that's kind of the theme I'm going to use tonight is the tale of two cities. Those two cities are the first two cities that were founded in America. The first one was founded in 1607. It is Jamestown. The second city was founded in 1620. It is Plymouth. Both of those cities became colonies. Both of those colonies became movements across the United States. So out of Plymouth, you have Massachusetts. But the first one was Jamestown, Virginia. And they became movements, as you'll see later. We used to, I'm going to show you some, some old public school maps that we used to use that show the difference between these two movements. Now, if you take what happened with Jamestown in 1607, when the people in Jamestown came ashore, they got off the boat, they headed towards shore, they got off at what's called Cape Henry. And when they landed at Cape Henry, they knelt down and they dedicated the land to Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, if you will read the charter, it's very clear. The charter says that they've done this because it tends to the glory of God's divine majesty and propagating the Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God. That's a very evangelical declaration. We're here for the purpose of Jesus Christ. Now, try finding that in an American history book today. Tough to do, but the original document is very clear. So what you find from Jamestown, the founding of Jamestown... These folks are evangelical Christians. There's just no disputing that. What you find by studying history is they were not biblical Christians. And there's a big difference. Can you be evangelical and not be biblical? Let me suggest that you can. Let me take you through some history. So if we go back to the Jamestown folk and look what happened, this is where we hear the term critical race theory. It's interesting that whole movement is centered on Jamestown, what they call the 1619 Project. That whole thing that we've been fighting for three years in our schools, they point to Jamestown as the source of all the bad stuff that came. Now, their history is really lousy. I mean, the 1619, it's owned, the 1619 Project got a Pulitzer Prize. Pulitzer Prize is owned by the New York Times. The New York Times printed the 1619 Project. So essentially, they gave themselves a Pulitzer Prize. You know, how good is that? So it is lousy history. It's really bad. But it doesn't change the fact that that's the excuse they use to be able to teach really bad stuff to our kids. Now, when you go back to Jamestown and look specifically at how they were founded, it's no question that slavery did happen in Jamestown. There's no question that it happened there, but it didn't happen the way we think. Matter of fact, I'll back up here to 1619. 1619, what happened was, now Jamestown founded in 1607, but Jamestown did not allow slavery. It was illegal in Jamestown. What happened was, in 1619, there was a British ship with a Dutch flag off the coast of Virginia, and there were slave ships that went by all the time. They would leave Africa, they would leave Europe, they would come over to the coast of America, go down the coast of America, they would go over into the Caribbean, to Cuba, wherever, where there were a lot of big slave markets, and they would sell the slaves into South America, into Central America, into the islands. And so one of those slave ships, a Portuguese slave ship, and the, the British were fighting Spain and Portugal, and so this Portuguese slave ship is coming by America, and as it does so, one of these British, British privateers, and it's kind of like pirates, it's a private ship, it's a private ship, the British will pay you money and let you have stuff if you can stop the enemy. So this, this privateer ship attacked the, the slave ship, and they conquered it, and so they took all the loot and all the booty, but there were about 20 slaves on board that ship that they also took. And they didn't want slaves because they're off looking for another ship. So what do we do with the slaves? Well, the closest place to us is Jamestown. Let's go there. They went to Jamestown and said, we got 20 slaves we'd like to sell you. Jamestown said slavery is illegal here. Now, that's first off a real problem for the 1619 Project. So slavery was illegal there. They said, well, what do you do? Well, we don't want them. We'll just leave them with you. So those 20 that were slaves on the slave ship became land-owning property owners in Virginia. They were free and they owned land in Virginia. One of them was a guy named Anthony Johnson. Anthony Johnson was one of the original 20. 
He became a very prosperous, wealthy landowner in Virginia. And an incident happened in 1653 that is very significant. Anthony Johnson, as a wealthy landowner, a black man who had been a slave, is now freed, part of that group of 20. He is free, and he's now sponsoring people to come to America. It's called indenture. If you want to come to America, really expensive, maybe $10,000, so you can't afford to come, but I will give you $10,000 if you'll come work for me for three, five, or seven years. After that, you too will be free, and you can have land, etc. So one of the guys that came to work for him was a guy named John Kaser. John Kaser came to work for him, and at the end of that period of indenture, the contract they both agreed to, John Kaser turned out to be maybe the laziest guy in American history. At least that's what the records indicate back then. He was really lazy. And it really was a problem for Anthony Johnson. And he said, this guy, he's worked for me these years, but I got nothing out of him. It's a complete loss of my money. So he went to court in Virginia and asked, he said, the only way that I'm going to get my money back out of this guy is if he works for me the rest of his life. So he asked the court, may I own this guy for the rest of his life? And the court said, yeah, you can own him for the rest of his life. That is the first occasion of slavery in Virginia, 1653, and it was when a black man sued to own another black man. Now, that's also not part of the narrative of the 1619 Project, but you'll find that slavery, being a sin, is common to every race, every people. Sin is not just with one group or one demographic or one area or one race. It, it's everybody. And, and so there's, there's nothing surprising about that except to people who don't understand history or who want to twist it. So what happens is after that, we can also talk, that, that's where slavery got started in Virginia and it became very big there. But also, if you go back and look at Virginia, these guys, all the folks who came to Virginia came out of Europe. And the whole tendency of Europe was, we have lots of monarchs in Europe. And being monarchs in Europe means that the state owns everything. The king owns everything. The queen owns everything. You work for them. They can take it away from you if they want, give it to somebody else. Nothing is yours per se. And so by all definitions, that is what we call a socialistic system at least. It's nothing free market, nothing freedom about it. The king owns everything. And so these guys get here, and Jamestown had its classes. It had the hierarchy, the, 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 the aristocrats. It had the lords and nobles, and it had the business owners, and it had the commoners, and it had the slaves. It had caste. It had classes in, in Jamestown. Not everyone was equal. And the guys up top said, the king sends us what we need. We're his colony over here. And the, the king did send ships over with supplies, and the Virginia Company sent ships over. And Governor John Smith said, you can't always rely on that. Things happen, and ships may not make it here. So you guys need to work. So he quoted 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And he made them go to work, and they promptly tried to kill him as a result. And so he had to go back to England to get medical treatment, so that policy didn't last long. Now they've got stuff where they don't have to work again. They're just waiting for the king to send them stuff. And what happens is, in waiting for that, this, this pro-socialistic mentality it had in that the government's going to take care of us, what happens is you get into what's called the starving time. Three, three winters in, the winter of 1609 and 1610 is a very significant time. It's called the starving time. And in that winter, they started, the, they started that winter with 490 in the colony. They ended it with only 60 in the colony. So they lost 430 people who starved to death in the starving time. Now, significant to the starving time, the ships didn't arrive, didn't have the supplies they were waiting on. So they go into winter, and they haven't put up anything. They haven't stored anything. They're waiting for it to come, and it's not there. So they start getting hungry, and before long, they're eating the rats and the mice and the frogs and the snakes and anything they can find. And... That doesn't last real long, so they kind of move up to what we would call maybe the pets, the dogs, and the cats, and that didn't last long enough, and so they move up to eating their herds. They eat their cattle, and they eat their horses, and that didn't 
do real well. And then somebody has the bright, bright idea, said, you know, we got a lot of dead people we've been burying in the cemetery. There's probably some meat left on those bodies. So they went and dug up the bodies and ate the meat off the deceased bodies. That still didn't give them enough. One of the guys, his wife was pregnant. He killed her and ate the unborn child and then ate her. Of course, they executed him for that. And then they ate him after they executed him. Twisted. Jamestown. See, this is, this is not a biblical way of thinking. But that's part of Jamestown. And so what happens is they actually ended up starting a number of Indian wars because, first off, they said, look, the king gave us the land. You guys need to get off our land. Second, the Indians were good neighbors the first two years. And surprised, in the first two winters, the Indians brought them food. When they ran out of food, the Indians brought them food. They had great relationships. When they demanded a third winter, the, the Indians said, look, we're having a tough time just living for ourselves. You're going to have to do some work and get your own food. And they refused to give them any food that winter. And so we start wars to go take it from them, take the land. So every way you go about it, this is not a good model colony. There's just, the history is really clear. And so there's a lot of things. They're elitist, they're socialistic, they're pro-slavery, they're big government, they're group conscious, all the wrong things. And this was Jamestown. This is literally what you have in Jamestown. Now, that's a 1619 project, and this is what they want to point out about how bad it is. And it is bad. Again, their history is super inaccurate. I can, I can show you stuff worse than they show you, but I can also show you good stuff they don't show you. However, a tale of two cities, how about if we look at the 1620 project and compare that to the 1619? Because there is a tale of two cities, and 1620 is when we get the pilgrims. Interesting thing about the pilgrims is there are a number of paintings from back in their day. Nearly every painting you find with the pilgrims always has the Bible as the center of what they do. They were known as Bible people. Now, you're going to have a tough time finding that with the Jamestown people, but not with the Pilgrim people. These guys were into the Bible because, you see, they had come through a situation in world history where they're starting back in 390. It's the first time we have a state-established church. Emperor Theodosius became a Christian in 390 A.D., and he announced to the empire, he says, I'm now a Christian, and you're all going to become Christians, or I'm going to kill you. And that was the new edict that he put out. And that is the beginning of the state-established church. For the next thousand years, you had state-established churches. You have to be Catholic. You have to be Anglican. You have to be Presbyterian. And if you're not, we're going to punish you or kill you for it. So the pilgrims are in England where it's state-established Anglican, and they read the Bible and said, the Anglican church is really corrupt. This is not what's supposed to happen. And by the way, as a result of the state-established churches back in 390 A.D., it got to where that it didn't matter what the Bible said, it's what the king says that, that matters, what the queen says that matters. So no use reading the Bible, and this is where literacy started to go really high. We go through a thousand years of what's called the Dark Ages, where biblical literacy is gone. People can't read, the Bible's not available. And if you try to make the Bible available to people in their common language, it'll get you killed. As it got Tyndall and Wycliffe burned at the stake for trying to put the Bible in English so everybody could read it. It got John Huss killed for trying to put the Bible in Czechoslovakian so Czech people could read it. So you go through this situation where the Bible is not available, and in those dark ages, and that's what they're called, lots of non-biblical stuff happened because people did not have the Bible. Now, what you see here, that Bible that's right there, the actual description of that Bible historically, that's called the world's first pocket Bible. You see the size of that Bible? How is that a pocket Bible? Because all Bibles prior to that were called pulpit Bibles. They were four times that large. They were chained to the pulpit of churches. They were in a language you couldn't read. So if you could read Latin or something else, you can go to the church and read it. But you can't take it with you. That is the first Bible English people could haul around with them. It was first printed in 1560 in Geneva. It's what's called a Geneva Bible. And that Geneva Bible in 1560, they, over the course of the Reformation, about 250 years, you have roughly seven nations involved. You have uh, about... 
23, 24 different reformers. And that Geneva Bible is known for taking the commentaries from Zwingli and from Calvin and, and from Knox and from Cramner and more and all these others and say, guys, here's what the Bible says. We've been doing it wrong for a thousand years. And so the commentaries criticize what's going on in government, in education, in economics, in every area of life. And that's what these guys brought with them. Now, we know from their governor, William Bradford, he said that they were reading in the Bible, every one of the pilgrims, not their leaders, the pilgrims themselves were reading the Bible somewhere between two and four hours every day. This is a book, they want to get it in their mind, they want to start seeing what God says, they want to live what God says, so they're in the Bible two to four hours every day. Now, significantly, their pastor, John Robinson over here, John Robinson said, look, when you get over there to that new land, you have an opportunity to leave behind the darkness of Europe. When you get there, don't take that tradition with you. You start something new over there and do what the Bible says, not what tradition says. So one of the first things they saw was related to elective government. If you recall Exodus 18.21, it says, And choose out from among you leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Now, we would say that's like having elections for your local county, state, and federal officers, tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands. But it says, choose out from among you leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands, able men such as fear of God, men of truth, hating covetousness, men who will rule in the fear of God. So you're saying have elections, and these are the type of qualifications you want to see in those people. So significantly, that, these guys believe that, and they also believe what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 16, 18, Deuteronomy 1, 15, 16, which repeats the same stuff. And at that point in time, they said, well, the Bible tells us to have elections. It doesn't tell us how often to have elections. We should have elections, and weren't doing that in Europe. But how often? And that's where it gets interesting for these guys. Because before they got off the ship, they came up and they wrote what's called the Mayflower Compact. That is the first governing document ever written in America's history on this continent. Now, when you read it, it too is very evangelical. Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Northern parts of Virginia. If you look at the old maps... Virginia goes from the Atlantic to the Pacific and from Canada to Mexico. All of that was Virginia. This is the northern part. Watch it, Virginia guys over there. Watch it. That's right. I'm going to get Texas into this in a minute, and then we'll have a lot of fun about it. Virginia, northern parts of Virginia is what we now call Massachusetts. That was all Virginia colony back then. And so at that point in time, they're in the northern parts of Virginia. And when they did that, it's interesting. They said, okay, the Bible says have elections. It doesn't tell us how often to do this. So let's do it every year. So they had annual elections. Their governor, William Bradford, was elected. He was reelected 29 times in a row. He was their governor for 30 years. But every year they had a chance to get a different governor. If a governor wasn't doing right, let's get one in that will. But you see, what they also did is they also elected their pastor every year. And so what they did for the first time in a thousand years is you have separated church and state the right way. Doesn't mean to secularize church and state. It means that they're two separate institutions. When God created Israel and gave the law, he said, Moses, you're over the civil stuff. Aaron, you're over the temple stuff. Neither one of those guys was secular. God was over both of them. But one guy didn't run both of them. And that's where it broke up with Emperor Theodosius. He took over the church and the state and ran them both together. Pilgrim said, no, 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 we're going back to what God did. And so that's where they started also electing their pastors, separating church and state. And because the state no longer had control over how we express our faith, that's where you get religious toleration and the rights of conscience. This is the growth of religious freedom in America because these guys literally did what the Bible said. But not just there. If you go further and see, for example, free enterprise, they were socialists when they came. Their governor, William Bradford, talks about the fact that they were. And William Bradford notes that, you know, he said, even among us as Christians, there are some who work harder than others. And there are some who realize that they don't have to work hard and they're going to get the same thing everyone else gets. 
And what changed them was they found Bible verses. One was 1 Timothy 5, 8 that says, if you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than the infidel. You died to faith. They said, oh my, we're providing for everybody else's household. We're not providing for our own household. And that was one of five verses that got them into what we now call the free market system, free enterprise system. And that free enterprise system, the very first free market business in the entire civilized world at that time was in Aptucket, Massachusetts in 1627. The five Bible verses they used specifically, and by the way, Governor Bradford says that once they moved to the free enterprise system, he said that their productivity was seven times higher than it had been before. They never again experienced a season of want in the Plymouth colony after they moved to the free market system. Bible verses they used were verses like 1 Timothy 5, 8. He quoted 2 Thessalonians 3, 10, and John Smith had done in Virginia. But they also used Matthew 25, Luke 19, and Matthew 20, all passages Jesus has on economic teachings. And so that's the basis of the free market system. In addition to that, you'll see that they also are involved in private property. When they came the first winter, they lived in property, and they didn't know whose it was, but they were conscious that it wasn't theirs. Uh, they talked about in the Ten Commandments, for example, the Bible says, don't steal somebody else's private property. It says, don't even covet someone else's private property. They did not meet an Indian that first winter they were there. But the next spring when they met Indians, they said, oh, the next winter, the next spring when they met Indians, they said, look, we've been living on somebody's land. We don't know who it is, and we don't know if that's okay or not. Is there somebody we can talk to? Because we'd really like to buy some land if there's anything. They went to the Indians and said, can we purchase land from you? And striking thing is the Indians agreed to that. And so what you find is with the Indians, for example, Josiah, Josiah Winslow, their second governor, Josiah Winslow said very simply, he said, I think I can clearly say that the English did not possess one foot of land in this colony, but what was fairly obtained by honest purchase, the Indian proprietors. They didn't have any land, but what they had a title deed to it from the Indians, and it was agreed to by the Indians and the colonists. They had a mutually satisfactory arrangement. The longest-lasting treaty in American history was between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag Indians, and when the treaty was broken 54 years later, it was the Indians who broke it, not the colonists who broke it. So these guys were very strong on private property. We don't take anything. Even when they, one winter they were hungry and starving, and they found some corn, and they found a corn in the kettle, and they ate the corn that kept them alive. The next winter they said, we ate somebody's corn. We've got to pay somebody for that corn. We don't, it's kept us alive. We're grateful to God for it, but who do we pay for the corn? I mean, they just wouldn't take things without paying for it. So you'll find private property, then also civil rights, because just as Jamestown had slavery, it was introduced into the Plymouth colony as well. But in 1641, the people in Plymouth said, wait a minute, we can't do that, because in 1641, they were writing their legal code for the colony. And they specifically quoted this Bible, verse 2116, where God says, those who are man-stealers are to be put to death. A capital offense for man-stealing. They define man-stealing as going to one country, stealing someone, taking them to another country, and selling them slave trade. The Bible says that's capital offense. That became their law. So what happened was the first slave ship arrived in 1646 in Plymouth. When that slave ship arrived in 1646, it was loaded with slaves. The captain officers came ashore and said, great deal, everybody. We got slaves. Who wants slaves? We got plenty of slaves. And they said, you got slaves? Yeah, we got lots of slaves. They said, okay. And they freed all the slaves, they imprisoned the captain officers, and they sentenced the captain officers to death, because that's the law. And the captain officer said, whoa, 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 you guys don't have slavery? Everybody's got slavery. We didn't know there's a place that didn't have slavery. We didn't know that. And Pilgrim said, okay, point taken. You didn't know, but you do now. If you ever come back to this colony, ever bring a slave back to this colony, we will execute you on the spot. That's what the Bible says. And so that's where the anti-slavery movement started, was in Plymouth. 
And of course, that's not part of what the 1619 Project talks about. It wants to pick one incident out of history and said, this is what America's all about. How about picking an incident out, out of the pilgrims? Yeah. Talk, talk about what these guys did. So you continue with that. This is a piece that was done in 1792 in Massachusetts newspapers. It's called the Equality Ball. It is a ball. It is a party, if you will. Over on the left is John Hancock, governor of Massachusetts. He's shaking hands with a black man named Paul Cuff. Paul Cuffey, you see him here, he and his sons were the wealthiest black men in America. They lived in Massachusetts. They owned a large global shipping business with several ships that went all over the globe. And they're celebrating the fact that in Massachusetts, there never was a time when blacks and whites were not equal. As a matter of fact, it's striking that when you look at this man, uh, Robert Brown Elliott, he was an early congressman in the 1870s. He talks about the fact that in Massachusetts, not only was there a time when blacks and whites were not equal, there's not a time when blacks and whites couldn't vote. That's not the narrative we get. That doesn't seem to be the, what we hear. We hear the 1619 Project. And then if you go beyond that, if you look at these guys, we're told by the 1619 Project, America is founded by a bunch of white guys. You know what? That is a bunch of white guys. How do we know what they looked like? Because the thing was, back then, since there were no cameras, if you did something very significant, they did a painting of you. So signers of the Declaration, that's big. A president, you get a painting. If you're a famous minister, you get a painting. If you're a general, you get a painting. Whoever did really significant stuff gets paintings because that takes time, effort, and money. It is amazing how many paintings of black officials we have from back in the 1700s, 1600s, and before. We never see them today. We're just told it was all a bunch of white guys. What do you do with all these guys? They all got painted because they did something significant. Of course, we've never heard what that is. But if I take e even someone like this, this guy on horseback right there, his name is Wentworth Cheswell. Wentworth Cheswell was a black man elected to office in New Hampshire in, in 1768. So he's elected to office in New Hampshire. He is reelected in that white community for the next 49 years. He held eight different political offices in New Hampshire. So there we've got 1768, we've got white community electing black officials to office in New Hampshire. He became one of their founding fathers. He helped start the library system. He helped start the education system in New Hampshire. But we just never hear anything about him. But you have to go back even further than that if you want to know where the first is. You have to go back to Matthias de Souza. In 1641, Matthias de Souza, a black man, was elected to the state legislature in Maryland out of a white district in 1641. Wait a minute, we're electing officials to office in America in 1641? Just to put that in context, do you know when Great Britain elected their first black official to office? 1987. Do you know when Russia elected their first black? 2010. And Italy, 2008. We've been electing black officials since 1641, and we're the racist nation in the world? We don't know our own history. We don't know what happens when you get the Bible at the base of a culture and what it can do to that culture. So going back and, and looking at, at these guys again, we, just, we don't know who they are, but that's a different, different talk for a different time. But if you go continue with the, the pilgrims, they were into education. They, they brought their kids over with them. You saw these young people there? What are they going to do for education over here? Well, that was a concern to them because we're supposed to raise up our kids in, in the knowledge and admonition of the Lord. And, and so what happened was they passed the first public school law. That first public school law, it's in the Code of 1650, but the law was passed in 1642, then again in 1647. And that law, you see where it says schools here, it's called the Old Deluder Satan Act. Now, how's that for the title of a public school law? 
the old deluder Satan act, and it says schools, and see what it explains? It says that being the one chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from knowledge of the scriptures that he has informed, Satan's number one project is to keep us from knowing God's word, and we ain't letting it happen here. We're going to make sure all of our kids know God's word, so when you got 50 50 folks into a community, you had to get a teacher. When you had 100 folks in a community, you had to build a school. And the Bible was the number one textbook, hands down, the number one textbook. Now, just to show you what this looked like, I'm going to jump ahead also in that northern area. I'm going to jump over to New Jersey in 1860. This is 170 years later. And I could choose any state. We have the records. We own 160,000 documents from American history. We've got 120 things, thing, documents before 1812. I can go back and show you just any colony you want, any state you want, show what their education is. But I want to show you, new, oh, and by the way, I forgot to tell you, see over here on the right, that Massachusetts colony is the first one to educate boys and girls. In Europe, you educate boys, some of them, if they're in the right class, but you sure don't educate women. Over here, we said, no, no, everybody needs to know God's word. Isn't it interesting that in Massachusetts, this backwoods colony, the highest literacy rate for women anywhere in the civilized world was in Massachusetts, backwood colony, because they didn't even do that in Europe. And in Massachusetts, they taught every child to read, every child to know God's Word. So what you find is, if I take you to 1816 New Jersey schools, this is the public school report for New Jersey schools in 1816. Now, in this report, they're talking about their first and second graders, what they call the first and second classes. Here's what the state report. It says, all the scholars of the first and second classes commit to memory portions of the New Testament or Psalms, a lesson of the Catechism, and several hymns, and the text of the preceding Sabbath. Wait a minute. Every kid in first and second grade is memorizing the Bible text of the Sabbath. What are the texts of the preceding Sabbath? Whatever Brother Barlow preached about on Sunday, we're going to memorize all those verses during the week. That's the text of the preceding Sabbath. That's public schools in New Jersey. Yeah, but they did point out that they had one kid that was a little smarter than the other kids. We all know kids like that, right? It says, one of the scholars is committed to memory the book of John and the first 30 Psalms together with the 119th Psalm. What grade were we to? Oh, yeah, first and second grade. Wait a minute, you memorized that? Yeah, but he was a smart one. They weren't all that smart. It said the majority have committed to memory the gospel by John. All the kids in public school memorize the gospel of John by the time they're in second grade. How many Christians do you know that have memorized the gospel of John? This is public schools in New Jersey in 1816. And if I jumped ahead to Pennsylvania, show you public schools in 1892. This is the State Board of Education, 1892, saying, teachers, here's what you need to be having kids memorize. It says, let the selections for the week be, if possible, two in number. You're going to have kids memorize two things a week. It says, the first from the Bible or sacred song, and the second from the world of literature, prose, or verse. Say, for example, this week, let's have the kids memorize the 90th Psalm and Lincoln's speech at Gettysburg, or Lead Kindly Light and Longfellow's Psalm of Life, or the 23rd Psalm and Lowell's Once to Every Man or Nation, or the 19th Psalm and Home Sweet Home, or My Country Tis of Thee and the Chamber of Nautilus, or the 13th chapter of Corinthians and the Last Rose of Summer, or any of the other th hundreds of good things, moral, religious, and patriotic, descriptive, or sentimental, in the best sense of the word, that we should all be very glad to have lodged in our memory. Every week in public schools in 1892 in Pennsylvania, you're memorizing one chapter of the Bible, and one piece of literature? Who, who does that kind of memory work today? That's public schools back in America. We don't see this as part of our history. And by the way, I love this. It says, and let the teacher always commit to memory what is here required of the pupil. Love that. <laughs> Teachers got to memorize it too. You can't just tell the kids. You have to set the example. So back to here. So that's public. If, if there's a problem that the Pilgrims and Puritans had in Massachusetts, it would be with civil rights. This is where every American textbook I've seen, Christian or secular, 
always talks about the intolerant Puritans and pilgrims. How do we know they're intolerant? Well, they came here to practice religious liberty, and then they started persecuting people who didn't believe like they did. That's the witch trials. They're killing all these people. Who and so you look at the witch trials. They killed 27 people over a period of 18 months, those intolerant Christians. There's more to the story than that. The story is not that they had witch trials, because you'll find witch trials were going on in virtually every nation of the world at that time. They were doing what everybody else was doing. The real story is, why did the trials end? And the answer to why the trials ended is very significant. It happened when three Christian leaders, it was the Reverend John Wise, the Reverend Increase Maddell, and the Reverend Thomas Rattle, they went to Governor Phipps and said, Phipps, you're doing what everybody else is doing. You're just copying everybody else. This is not what the Bible says. They opened the Bible and showed him what the Bible said about due process in the Bible. When Phipps saw that, he called in Judge Samuel Sewell and he said, Sewell, what we're doing is wrong. Look what the Bible says. He said, you've got to stop the trials. So they stopped the trials. And it's significant that Sewell then stood up in church. He confessed to the church that he had shed innocent blood against God's word. He asked for forgiveness from the church and the community. The governor then called for a statewide, a colony-wide day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer, seeking to avert God's judgment for having shed innocent blood. And then they took all the names of the people that had been convicted and took their names off the legal documents because the trials were all wrong. They weren't done wrong. They couldn't have been convicted right. So their names are off. So you don't know who their names are because you don't want to know the wrong people were convicted of something. And then they paid restitution to the families, trying to do everything they could to make it right. Now, here's where it gets significant. That's, that's a Plymouth story, which we don't hear. I've never seen this in any American textbook, secular or Christian, although that's a story. The rest of the story is this. Witch trials were going across Europe at the time, all over the civilized world. How many people were put to death in the European witch trials? 500,000. Anybody get that in their history textbook? So we're going to take the 27 in America and tell how bad the Christians are and not look at the 500. Christians make mistakes too. There's errors and we got plenty of them. It's the good, the bad, the ugly. But you know what? When you have Christ, you can redeem that, turn it around, and get out of it. That's why we stopped after 27. It was wrong. All 27 stopped after 27. We didn't get to 500,000. And so when you look at the pilgrims, there's no question that these guys, and by the way, due process, I mentioned that a minute ago. If you don't know what that is, that's the fourth of the eighth amendment of the Constitution. The, the, the fourth through the eighth amendments are where you have the right to confront your accuser, the right to compel witnesses on your behalf, uh, the right to speak in your own defense. All those amendments, fourth through the eighth amendment, that's called due process. I've been involved in 13 cases of the U.S. Supreme Court, and Justice Stephen Breyer, who is the most recent retiree from the Supreme Court, he has hands down the most secular justice we've ever had on the court as far as we can tell. You know, there may be other, there are others that were secular, but he was openly secular. And yet, Breyer, I was reading a decision he had, and he was talking about, he says, well, we all know that the due process clauses in the Bill of Rights come out of the, come out of the Bible. Now, Breyer said that. Whoa, time out. We know that it came out of the Bible? What are you talking about? So I looked at the footnote, and he had a footnote there for that particular thing, and it cited federal practice and procedure. And federal practice and procedure, if you practice federal law, it's a volume of law books that goes from here to the wall. Volume 30 in federal practice and procedure deals with due process clauses. And as you get into volume 30 in federal practice and procedure, you find out that the right, according to federal practice and procedure, there's 20 pages on how the Bible shaped the Bill of Rights, the due process clauses. And it points out that the right to confront your accuser comes out of John 8.10. The right to compel witnesses on your behalf, Proverbs 18.17. The right to speak in your own defense, Acts 22.1, and so forth. Do you realize the Bible was that practical? 
See, as Christians today, we've been told, even as Christians, the Bible kind of goes over here in the spiritual stuff. No, no, it goes in the economic stuff, it goes in the education stuff, it goes in the family stuff, it goes in the government stuff, it goes in everything out there. And that's, that's where as Christians, we got to break out of that mold that there's a place where the Bible fits. No, Bible fits everywhere. Everything else needs to go within it. But remember, these are folks who studied the Word of God two to four hours a day. They were putting time in on this. It was not wrapped around their, their lives were wrapped around the Bible. And, and that's, that was significant. So as you look at these guys, significantly with these guys, I told you just about every old picture's got them carrying the Bible. They were known as the people of the book. What a great title for Christians. We should be people of the book. That's the way they were known literally. And significantly, they were professing Christians. You read their documents, you read the Virginia Company documents, they're both professing Christians. However, these guys were biblical Christians, and that's a real difference from the other colony. These guys actually put the Word of God into practical practice. Now, to shut down this first section, Brother Barlow, go back to you. I want to show you the difference between 19, 16, 19, 16, 19 Project, 1620 Project, by going back to an old public school wall chart. It's going to be hard for you to see if you're back. It's, just, it's, a, such a, it's got such small writing, but I'll, I'll blow it up and show you some of it. So what you see, 1888, this is a school wall chart. This would be a really big chart on the front of the classroom for kids to understand history. And you see that there's two veins that go across America. One is called God's curse of slavery, and the other is God's blessing of liberty. One, and you see over here, there's two ships that have landed. This is the 1619 ship right there at Jamestown. This is the 1620 ship there at Plymouth. Now, Jamestown... If you see inside my red circle, there's another circle there. And that circle, on the outside of that circle, up top right, it's hard to read it. The word is mammon. What is mammon? Oh, money. That's what Jesus talked about, love of mammon. Oh, so that's a colony. That's an economic colony. It's founded for a love of money. And what you see is all this bad stuff that, that happens across it. It's superstition, ignorance, and lust, and avarice, and rebellion, and the Dread Scott decision, Kansas, Nebraska Act, the Fugitive Slave Law, the Compromise, 1850, Missouri Compromise, 18, all this bad policy, all this bad stuff came out of money. That's the most important thing. Now, when you contrast that, and again, we're professing Christians, when you contrast that up with 1620, if you can see there, it's a book, and on the back, it says Bible. Oh, they were founded on the Bible. And being founded on the Bible, all these good stuffs happen. You've got equal rights and love of country and patriotism and happiness and patience and charity and faith. You've got honor and virtue and industry and free speech and, and free schools and all, all these good things. That comes out of people who use the Bible as the base of what they did. And they were professing Christians too, but they were also biblical Christians. They, they applied this to everything they did. My challenge to you would be, be biblical Christians because when you look at these guys, the difference between professing and biblical Christians, you see it. It's right here. Jesus Christ has made us kings and priests. We should be competent in the civil arena and in the spiritual arena. All of those arenas are God's. And these, it's like the pilgrims. The pilgrims, see, it doesn't say or. It says and. He has made us kings and priests. We need to be competent in all those areas. The pilgrims were. These guys were kings and priests, and it was because they knew God's word. The Jamestown folks didn't have that knowledge. They, they had to bring in their kings and priests because they didn't specifically know God's word. We've got to be people who we don't need to bring in kings and priests. We've got God's word, and we can apply it to everything. So my challenge to you, this first part, is be knowledgeable of God's word at a higher level than you are now. I would put just about any one of you up against those second graders in New Jersey, and I would bet on them to win. I mean, we just don't memorize the Bible at the level those second graders do, 
but it tells me it can be done. We just need to motivate ourselves to do that. It's hard in this culture to motivate. There's so many things that distract us, but let's get back to God's word. Brother Bartlett. Now you, you can save a little of that. He's not done. 